We have a lot of verses, obviously, up there behind me today. We're going to do a prophecy update. And I encourage you all to either jot down these verses or take a screenshot. That's probably the easier way to do it. And, uh, and then you'll have them to refer to. Uh, and I strongly encourage you to refer to them, to look back and think through what we're going to talk about today. I was thinking that compared to last week, and you have to just bear with me this morning, I'm, I'm fighting something, I don't know what it is, but it's in my chest and it's making my voice a little more Johnny Cash today. I should have worn all black, that would have been good today. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but this is a more serious topic this morning. Uh, last week was more joyful, I think, a little more upbeat, but uh, while we're studying through Galatians, and we just started to open up the book last week, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 6, look at just a couple of verses, and then talk about some things I think of grave importance and seriousness. Even this morning, I woke to read the news that in Jerusalem, a Palestinian carried out a truck attack on IDF soldiers in Jerusalem's Arman Hanatziv neighborhood. Four soldiers are dead um, in their 20s. When you hear about IDF soldiers, they are kids mostly. They go right out of high school into, into service for two years. So IDF soldiers typically are anywhere between about the ages of 18 and 20. Uh, the younger ones, and then of course they've got their commanders. But four soldiers were killed in this truck attack, three women, one man. Fifteen others were seriously wounded too critically. Uh, this was an ISIS copycat attack of the attack in Nice, France, and, and Berlin here recently. And images on social media showed some Palestinians handing out sweets to their children in celebration of the killing. We are living in times that are serious, in times where terrorism is the norm and not the the unusual, where we hear of terror attacks all the time, where they have made their way even into our country. And in light of these things, I want to talk about prophecy, Bible prophecy, And a prophecy update this morning that I'm going to draw out of Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Let me read these to you. We'll pray and think these things through. Galatians 6, 15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy, be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Verse 16, one more time. Those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to hear your scriptures in the plain and unadulterated truth, to accept, Father, that which is true and right and good, and to reject anything that is not. Help us, Lord to have revelation of these things. We ask this by your Spirit, for your Spirit is the one who reveals and who teaches and who brings understanding to all things. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have over the years at the bridge done many prophecy updates. Perhaps not as many last year as as in previous years. I suspect we will do quite a few this year. 
There are a lot of things we can talk about. The idea of a prophecy update, if you've ever been involved with or heard prophecy updates here or anywhere else before, let me give you the basis of every prophecy update we have or will ever do, we have done or will ever do. And that is Revelation 19, verse 10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why would you do a prophecy update? Is that just to tickle ears with fanciful notions of things spoken by people hundreds of years ago that might be fulfilled today? No, we do prophecy updates to proclaim the name of Jesus. Because all Bible prophecy points to Him. You know this, over 300 prophecies were literally fulfilled by Him in His first coming. You could call those prophecies signposts of the Savior. The prophets spoke these things, fulfilled by Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus as He came into this world. And Jesus said, Luke 24, verse 44, All things which were written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All things. All things. That's not just prophecies of His birth, of His young life, of His betrayal, prophecies of His death, His burial, His resurrection. All things includes all prophecies of Jesus, which also means prophecies of His parousia. Parousia? That's the Greek word for His coming. His arrival or His presence. The parousia of Jesus. In Matthew 24, 27, he said, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man, be. And if all things must be fulfilled, all things proclaimed about Jesus in Hebrew prophecy, guess what? That means the prophecies of His coming will be fulfilled, I believe, just as literally as the prophecies of His first appearance in this world. So when we do prophecy updates again, what we're really doing is just pointing out markers of the Messiah. Signposts of the Savior. uh, Pointers to the parousia. Things that tell us He is coming. His coming is nigh. In fact, His coming is imminent. And as we read these signs, these very clear signs, these prophecy updates, we understand Jesus' return is near. And we look forward to that return and think about that return. Uh, A little side note here. I am aware of of a friend who was really struggling through the Christmas holidays. Having panic attacks. And when it all boiled down, what it it had to do with was panic, panic attacks literally about death. A fear of dying, fear of death. And and this was a young person as, as well. And I thought to myself, you know, the fear of death, boy, that just, it's just so pervasive in the world, isn't it? In fact, when we talk about terror attacks, aren't we really talking about a fear of death? That if something would happen and it would, might, and it would kill somebody. And to my mind, I can think of nothing greater than going home to be with Jesus. Death is not something that I fear, but many people do. And sadly to me, many people fear prophecy because they fear the end. They fear, oh no, if Jesus comes, well then it's all over, and then what? How can I encourage you that to be in Christ at His coming is the most wonderful possibility of anything you could conceive of? 
That to go home to be with Jesus means an end to terror, an end to fear, an end to life as we know it, and a coming into a life that is prepared for us, that is a glorious, wonderful, good thing, better than any life that you could live now. Your best life is not now. Your best life is to come. And over and over and over the Bible talks about that and the Scriptures proclaim there is glory. Glory not as some blank thing out there that we don't understand, but truly the greatest joy, the greatest peace, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest fulfillment that you could ever possibly hope to have is coming in Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be found here. Not in its fullness. So be not afraid. Don't be anxious about things like prophecy fulfilled around us and the imminency of Christ's return because, my friends, this is gospel. This is good news. Again, Jesus says, as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, you might say, but can we know when lightning's going to strike? And if Jesus' coming is like lightning, who knows when lightning will strike? I mean, we're not Marty McFly or Doc Brown. You know, this is a hill valley in the clock tower, and we know when the lightning's going to hit the clock tower, so get the car ready. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 2, When it's evening, you say, Fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, you say, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Indeed, if you live on the East Coast, you know when lightning is going to strike. Oh, you may not know the precise day or hour or the moment or the exact location. Of course, we know the location that Jesus is going to come. But if you live in places like Virginia, I remember the three years that I lived there, we didn't know when lightning was going to strike, but we knew it was about to strike. I mean, you could tell, literally. I remember being out at a soccer game with some friends, and the clouds rolled in, and thunder began to roll, and we made it for our cars to be sure that there were rubber tires between us and the ground so that we would be safe against lightning strikes, because we could tell it was about to happen. Such is prophecy. We see these things and we can tell something's about to happen. So, while not giving us that exact day or hour, Jesus did encourage us to be alert, to be ready, to literally be on the watch for these markers of Messiah. Keep your finger in Galatians and turn over, if you will, to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Now, in Matthew 24, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there this morning, but but a moment, if you will. Jesus talked about birth pangs. He uses the same word as, as Mark quotes him in Mark 13. Birth pangs of these markers, that is... These signs that something's about to happen, that a birth is about to take place, that a coming is about to occur. Birth pains. We've talked about birth pains many times in the past, that birth pains indicate the coming birth with increasing intensity and frequency. So the more you see these birth pains, and the more intense these birth pains are, the more you know we're getting close. And then Jesus goes on to list several. He lists natural birth pains. Uh, Things like earthquakes and and famines, uh, signs in the heavens, or as Luke 21 points out, the roaring of the sea and the waves that is perplexing to us. 
And as these things we see on the increase, and you can actually mark the increase of all these things in this generation. But I don't want to talk about that this morning. Some of the birth pangs, Jesus says, are relational birth pangs. Uh, Conflict in families. Love growing cold because of the increase of lawlessness. We see wars and, and rumors of wars So relational type birth pangs, Uh, you can, well you all are aware of the Facebook beating that took place this last week. Just brutal and wrong in, in the whole act. The Fort Lauderdale shooting of this last week. And again, as I mentioned already, the truck attack. Well, we used to be afraid of or worried about or concerned with truck bombs. Now it's just trucks. You know, you use a large, several-ton vehicle like that and ram it into a crowd of people. And you can do great damage. Relational birth pangs. This morning I want to hone in on one that is not just relational, but it is absolutely personal. It is what I believe to be the single biggest marker of Messiah and His coming in our entire generation. I would track back over the last 50, 60 years and say this is the biggest marker. This is the one that is a signpost so huge, no student of Scripture, no Christian should be unaware. And I'm talking about God's people, Israel. If you want a marker for Messiah and the imminency of His coming, keep your eyes on Israel. Watch what's happening with Israel. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 32, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. The fig tree? As I'll show you, the fig tree throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is a very clear emblem of Israel. Learn the parable of the fig tree, Jesus says. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The fig tree. Anyone watching Israel knows that the fig tree is tender and leafy. That it literally put forth its leaves. That it blossomed. This fig tree, cultivated over almost 1900 years, sprang to life suddenly, just as Isaiah promised. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, as in going through birth pangs, she also brought forth her sons. And so as soon as Zion, as the Jewish people went through the Holocaust, they also brought forth their sons. And the nation of Israel was born in a day, May 14th, 1948. It's a date I have shared many, many times over the years here with you all. And as a matter of fact, we've talked many times about Israel here at the bridge. I I almost, I paused in my study this last week and said, Lord, you know, should I go over this again? And I felt strongly that for those of you who have heard these things, this will help put into place some things that are happening right now, back in the last two weeks, with things that you already know. If you have never heard these things... If you've never considered Israel, I remember it was, let me think now, 15, 
16 years ago that I first heard a teaching about Jerusalem in prophecy and it stirred me like nothing else. I had never heard that before. I spent some 35 years of my life as a follower of Jesus not caring about Jerusalem, not having much thought given to Israel because you know that's old school. That's Old Testament. What does that really have to do with today and how does that apply to me? So I never thought about these things until I heard that teaching. It blew my mind and it changed my trajectory. And it opened the Scriptures like nothing else has. And as a matter of fact, you know down through the years we have studied the entire Hebrew Bible. We've gone Genesis through Malachi. All of it is online. You can study through and follow it if you choose to. But we have gone verse by verse through the Scriptures and have seen the relevancy of Israel, not just to a place back in history, but to right now, to modern day, before our very eyes. The nation of Israel reborn and throughout again the Hebrew Scriptures, the fig tree is the symbol of the land and the people of Israel. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 13, Solomon wrote, The fig tree has ripened its figs. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And how much does that song, that poem of Solomon, sound like what Jesus says in Matthew 30, uh, 24, 32? I really think that Jesus had the Song of Songs in mind when He said, Learn the parable of the fig tree. Because you see, when the fig tree blossoms, that's when the bridegroom says, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. The fig tree, Israel. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. Israel is also compared to a vine. A vine and a fig tree are the two big symbols that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. I found Israel like grapes, a vine in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor. They devoted themselves to shame And they became as detestable as that which they loved. Idolatry. And so the Lord prophesied through Joel in Joel chapter 1 verse 7. My fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare, cast them away. Their branches have become white. So get the picture. Israel as the fig tree, fruitful in its first season. And then becoming fruitless. And then literally stripped bare. But at the last fruitfully restored to the glory of God Himself. Listen to this, or turn there if you'd like to. Joel chapter 2, verse 21. The prophet Joel 2.21. And again, you can go back and look these verses up. Process them at a later date if you choose to do so. Joel 2.21, speaking of a glorious promise, the Lord says, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. And then I will make up for you, God is talking to Israel, I will make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust and the stripping locust and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people, Israel, will never be put to shame. It is a prophecy. Remember, all things written about me must be fulfilled, Jesus says. And this is a prophecy of a time when Israel will be elevated to a place of no shame. Never more maligned in this world. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. A kingdom that is soon to come. And he says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. Marvelous. It's a promise. It is a prophetic promise that we will see fulfilled in that coming kingdom. When Israel is the premier nation in the world. However, it is a promise that must follow severe injury. Turn there from uh, Joel over to Zechariah, just a couple books to the right. Zechariah chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 1. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. Which says, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. Reeling? Intoxication. Drunkenness. That people will act toward Jerusalem foolishly as though they are drunk off their keister. That they will treat Jerusalem with thoughtlessness, with carelessness. They will do things that they ought not do to God's city, Jerusalem. A cup that causes reeling. And he says when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured. Now note this, this doesn't make sense to us in the way we do things. But he says, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. What's he talking about? He's talking about a boundary stone. That the way people used to mark off boundaries of property was with stones. And if you moved a boundary stone of your neighbor, you were, you were in big trouble, mister. I mean, that was a violation of Jewish law. You didn't touch a neighbor's boundary stone. And here when God says, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone and all who, severe, who, who lift it will be injured, he's talking about moving boundaries. He's talking about dividing his city. He's talking about altering the landscape, and it is not something that any man has a right to do. And God says, when you do it, you try to lift that stone, you will be severely injured. By the way, every president in the last 40 years of American history who has tried to lift and move the boundary stone of Jerusalem has suffered for it. Everyone. And our current president, I believe, will. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And there it is. The Bible speaks of a time when the entire world will turn on and against Jerusalem. And we're almost there. We are almost there. Luke 21-24 Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. These are the times of the Gentiles. And Jesus saying that tells us two things. It tells us that Jerusalem is going to see trouble throughout the entire church age. The times of the Gentiles began 2,000 years ago and continue up to present day. But the other thing that Jesus saying that tells us is that those times will be fulfilled. That is, they will come to an end. That we are at the tail end of the times of the Gentiles. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you, before we get back to Galatians 6, and I'll give you a brief explanation at the end about that. Before we get back there, I want to give you four heavy steps. Four tramplings, if you will, that are taking place right now before our very eyes, I say in fulfillment of prophecy. Four tramplings. Trampling number one. If you're taking notes, jot this down. The UN Security Council Resolution 2334. UN Security Council Resolution 2334, trampling number one. This states that Israel has no right to any of the lands that it took control of in the 1967 Six-Day War. In addition, it notes that any quote-unquote settlement activity on such lands is a flagrant violation of international law and has no legal validity. The resolution passed unanimously 14 to 0 at the United Nations as the Obama administration reversed course on 49 years of U.S.-Israeli policy, refusing to veto and abstaining from the vote. Now, don't get up and walk out because Rick's getting into politics. This is not politics. This is prophecy. So pay close attention. UN Security Council Resolution 2334 was adopted two weeks ago while we were singing Christmas carols on December 23rd, 2016. This resolution is widely seen as as a political, some say personal, parting shot against Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu by President Obama. Personally, I think it's a whole lot more than a petty swipe. You know how this works, right? That the resolutions come up for vote and and the, and the, the permanent members of the Security Council, including the United States, we have the right to veto. And if we veto, it goes down and it does not pass. And historically, for 49 years, every Security Council resolution proposed against Israel, the United States has vetoed. Because Israel is our ally. And so we don't tolerate it. We veto it. It's done. It's out. Except this one. This is now the first time. And what the Obama administration did was abstain. We just won't vote. But in abstaining, allowed the passage of this resolution. You might say, well, okay, but big deal, right? This is a country, Israel, the size of New Jersey. Tiny, tiny little postage stamp country in the Middle East. It is surrounded by ISIS, Hezbollah, and Hamas. Three reigning terror organizations in the world today. It's also got neighbors like Syria, you know, Iran, 
And even Turkey and Egypt, who had been up to the last couple of years at least semi-friendly, tolerating Israel, and Israel tolerating them, now it was Turkey and, and Egypt that brought the resolution to the forefront at the UN Security Council. By the way, how many uh, resolutions were passed? Anybody know this? How many resolutions were passed in the Security Council against Israel over this past year? Or not in the Security Council, but UN resolutions that were passed against Israel in the last year, in 2016. Anyone know? 20. 20 resolutions condemning Israel. This is the first one that actually made it through the Security Council passing there. How many UN resolutions were brought up against war-torn Syria in the last year? Four. So four resolutions against the insane brutality of the civil war going on in Syria and 20 against Israel, a peaceful democratic nation. Do you see how messed up this is? Do you see how we are now living in a time, and the Bible called this for the last days, a time where that which is right would be called wrong, and that which is wrong would be called right. And so everything is completely upside down, and people are voting thinking, yes, condemn Israel. Oh, well, let's leave Syria alone. It's not that big a deal. Come on. Open your eyes. It's remarkable. The United Nations. Resolution 2334 is designed to force a two-state solution guaranteeing a Palestinian state for, listen, for a people group that does not exist. Palestinians. You know that the Palestinians ceased to exist about 3,000 years ago? The Philistines? The maritime Philistines, a European people who sailed across from Crete and landed on the shores of Israel and tried to maintain a foothold and they were a thorn in the side of Israel. And they were destroyed and wiped out and never heard from in the land again until the mid-60s when Yasser Arafat manufactured the idea that he and his people were actually ancient Philistines, Palestinians. And so now there's this whole group that are called Palestinians. And I, I, don't, I don't fault the innocent Palestinian, the person who is under the oppression of Hamas and Fatah and the Palestinian Authority today. It's not the people's fault necessarily, but they are fed constant lies and constant bitterness and anger and violence against Israel. Resolution 2334 is irreversible unless the UN decides to reconvene to reverse it, which is not going to happen. The United States president-elect cannot change it. And again, it demands a return to pre-1967 lines, boundary lines, separating Israel from what was then Jordan, not Palestinian territory. It was Jordan. And Jordan attacked Israel, and Syria attacked Israel, and Egypt attacked Israel with a severely depleted uh, air fleet. And in that attack, Israel fought back and pushed back and gained some final security in the Golan Heights. And in what is called by the media the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. They gave back the Gaza Strip. You know what happened there. That's just become a hotbed of terror activity under the control of Hamas. But this land that was 
fought for defensively and then won and conquered, Jerusalem in 1967 was reunified. For the first time in 1893 years, the Jews had control of Jerusalem once again, just as God promised, just as His Word declared they would. But this UN resolution demands, again, a return to pre-1967 lines, to an area that is now what was Jordan now called Palestinian territory, and it includes every inch of East Jerusalem. Now again, if you've never been there, if you've never seen Jerusalem, you might think, well, what's the big deal? Just give them half and you keep half and everybody will be happy, right? Listen. This resolution now makes it illegal by international law to be a Jew in the old city of Jerusalem. It makes it illegal to be a Jew praying at the Western Wall. And Israel claims to have ironclad proof that President Barack Obama actually engineered Resolution 2334. That while it was brought forward by Turkey and Egypt and the U.S. simply abstained, Obama's the one behind the whole thing. My friends, I share this all with you. This is bad news for Israel. And it's getting worse. You see, that's just trampling number one. Following the uproar over the December 23 vote, and by the way, there, there was a, a big uproar. In fact, Congress, if you wa- are watching these things, just passed a resolution condemning the action. Democrats and Republicans collectively, Democrats breaking with their president, collectively brought forth, and I think it was like 384 to 80 or something like that. They, they brought forth a resolution condemning the action in the UN. Well, that's good, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change the UN resolution. And while all that uproar was going on, on Christmas Eve, December 24th, we saw the quiet passage of another move at the UN, trample number two, the UN blacklist plan for Israeli companies. UN blacklist plan. Well, what are you talking about, Rick? There was a move made to appropriate $138,700 as a beginning to develop a database of all companies doing business in the West Bank. Specifically Israeli companies, but any company connected with them. What it does is it it throws UN weight behind the anti-Semitic boycott, divest, and sanction movement. The BDS movement. If you've heard about that, it's a movement from the West that is calling on all uh, organizations, companies, even churches to boycott Israel, to divest from any work with or connected to Israel, and to sanction Israel. What does that mean? Brooke Singman in Fox News World Report reported on January 3rd this measure would investigate the implications of the Israeli settlements on the civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights of the Palestinian people throughout the, quote, occupied Palestinian territory, which extends to East Jerusalem and would, and here's the key, it would produce a database of all business enterprises working in territories disputed between Israel and the Palestinians. The database is a, quote, effort to lay the groundwork for the UN Security Council to follow up on its anti-settlement declaration by imposing costly economic sanctions. A database. So that if you have a company that is employing people in the Palestinian territories in the, quote, unquote, West Bank, 
that you could be censored for that. You could lose business. You could lose all kinds of money and opportunity there. And you know what's interesting about this is if there was a true blacklist that came out, you know who would be most seriously affected by it? Palestinian workers. There are Israeli companies in the Palestinian territories right now that employ thousands of Palestinians. And if those Israeli companies are divested from or boycotted against, guess who loses their jobs? The very people that the UN is claiming to try to support. It's crazy. None of what I'm telling you, by the way, is coincidental. These are not just, oh, here's this and here's that. Oh, here's another thing. That's, that's interesting. This is a coordinated stomp that is taking place. Trample number three. Okay, remember the first one, the UN Resolution 2334. Second one, immediately followed up, the UN move to create this blacklist database. And now, number three, number three, following right on the heels, December 28th, John Kerry, Secretary of the State, uh, of, State of the United States, gave a speech. He's outgoing Secretary of State, of course he would give a speech, right? Big deal. It was an hour and a half speech in which Kerry undergirded the Obama administration's decision to abstain from Resolution 2334. He strongly rebuked Israel in the speech, and he stated, and I went back, I didn't listen to the speech, I went back and read it, it made me sick. Because in it he also stated that all Jewish settlements in Jerusalem were a threat to peace. Yasser Arafat would be dancing in his grave. Naftali Bennett, Israel's education minister, responded to John Kerry saying, Kerry needs to pick up his Bible and read it. Benjamin Netanyahu responded saying, we don't need lectures on peace from other nations. And he said this, listen, how can you make peace with someone who rejects your very existence? See, something else that just came out in the news recently is that UN-sponsored schools in the Palestinian territories have textbooks that don't even show Israel on the map. That completely ignore the existence of the Jewish state altogether. Now that's typical of Palestinian textbooks, but it should not be typical of the United Nations textbooks. And yet that's the case. Well, John Kerry's speech went out, and again, you might say, well, he's just an outgoing Secretary of State giving his opinion, and there will be a new one. It's not a, not a big deal. Trample number four. That was number three. This is number four. Paris, January 15th, the Global Peace Conference, hosted by France's outgoing lame duck president, Francois Hollande. Francois Hollande, whose own country suffered the serious... 84 people dead truck attack in in Nice this past year, is hosting now a global peace conference with a single agenda item dealing with peace in the world, and that is the creation of a Palestinian state. That's the point of the whole thing. Guess who's not invited to attend? Israel. Oh, Israel is allowed to respond after the conference is over. But they are not invited. Israeli Defense Minister Abignor Lieberman called this a new Dreyfus trial. Now to some that might not mean anything. To any Jewish person it would mean a lot. A new Dreyfus trial? Alfred Dreyfus stood in the center of Paris, 1894. 
this highly decorated French army captain who was wrongly convicted of espionage was publicly there humiliated. He had his sword broken. He had his insignias ripped off his uniform and his beard torn out. While people surrounding him there in Paris shouted, Death to the Jew! Death to the Jew! I've shared this story before. There was a journalist there covering the story at the time. A young man by the name of Theodore Herzl. And what Herzl witnessed so impacted him, so affected him deeply that he ended up turning around and writing what was called The Jewish State. It's a little booklet, 80-85 page booklet. The Jewish State, where Herzl declares the only hope for the survival of Israel is a Jewish homeland. And he spent the rest of his life, his very short life, looking into where possibly there could be a Jewish homeland. They even looked into parts of Uganda as a possibility, just a place where Jews could live in peace. Herzl would never live to see the day that Israel declared its independence in 1948. But from that day forward, Alfred Dreyfus became a symbol for many Jewish people of anti-Semitism historically. By the way, 12 years after that trial, Alfred Dreyfus was exonerated, though the press didn't cover it. They never do. In Paris again. Next week, the foreign ministers of 70 nations, and here's the rub, foreign ministers of 70 nations are expected to adopt the language of John Kerry's speech as their foreign policy against Israel. That's the significance of the speech. And we're watching these things just being laid down one after another in succession. Wait a minute, how many nations did I say? 70. That's very significant. To the Jewish mind, to the, to the Bible student, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we read there of the table of nations. It spreads out. It's a description of where all the nations came from. It's absolutely fascinating. Coming out of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And out of the sons of Noah come a total of, get this, 70 nations. So for the Jewish people, 70 has always been a representation of all the nations of the world. When you say 70 nations, you might as well say the nations of the globe. That's what you're referring to. And in all the nations of the world, Israel once again is standing alone, or at least appears to be. Four tramplings, one after the other. And by the way, the trampling doesn't end there. Caroline Glick wrote an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post, December 29th, that you ought to read. Look it up online. Here's an excerpt from it. She says, the day after that conference, it will be Obama's turn. Obama can be expected to use the occasion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday to present the Palestinian war to annihilate Israel as a natural progression of the American civil rights movement that King led 50 years ago. Finally, somewhere between, or sometime between January 17th and 19th, and so we will watch these things, she writes, Obama intends for the United Nations Security Council to reconvene and follow the gang at the Paris conference by adopting John Kerry's positions as a Security Council resolution. That follow-on resolution could recognize Palestine granting full membership 
in the UN. And again, I'm not talking about innocent people who are called Palestinians, but I'm talking about the leadership of Palestine, the Palestinian Authority, when I say that that would be giving membership at the UN to a terror state. The Simon Wiesenthal Center named Obama's move just a couple weeks ago as the worst case of anti-Semitism in 2016. Are you watching Israel? This is not mere politics. Listen again to God's Word. Joel chapter 3 verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them. There on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. Listen, and they have divided up my land. They scatter my people. They divide my land. They take my territories and they say, some to you, some to you. By the way, I've said this many times. There was a two-state solution. It was given back in 1947 at the UN when Transjordan was created for the Arabs and Israel for the Jews. And the Jews accepted it and the Arabs rejected it. And civil war, or world war broke out. Five Arab nations against Israel. Israel won that war, declared their independence, and held only the land that they were given then by the UN. But it was a a declaration in the United Nations that has never been, ever, accepted by the Arabs. Though Israel accepted it. So to force them to go back to 1947 partition lines is basically to say, you've got to go back to what Israel accepted, but none of us ever did, but we want to now. Why should we care? So all this has taken place. Israel in the news. We get that. They're always in the news. Jerusalem is on the front page almost every day. Isn't that interesting? When God said, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling. And you realize until 1948, Jerusalem was not on the front pages of the news every day. It was increasingly after the 1900s began. But before that, 1800s, 1700s, go back further. Jerusalem wasn't really talked about. It was It was nothing. It's something now. Now you might say, okay, but even if I say, yeah, I side with Israel, I'm, I'm opposed to you know, all those who are against Israel, I understand that, but it's just kind of a choice, right? It's not that big a deal. Why does it really matter what side we're on? It's like picking your favorite sports team. Right? Some of you for the Seahawks, others for other teams. I think there are other teams as well out there. <laughs> My, my wife has a bumper sticker. Cheryl has one on our, on our van. Perhaps you've seen it. It says, I root for the Seahawks and for anyone playing against the Patriots. <laughs> Isn't it more than that? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so, Bridge Fellowship, I ask you all this morning, does God's Word wear out? Does God's Word ever fail? Or is He true to what He says? The Western Church is embracing anti-Semitic policies at an alarming rate. 
It truly breaks my heart. I'm watching this take place. And by the way, if you're wondering why so many denominations that were once great seem to be really going down, I would tie it to their defamation of Israel. I would directly connect it to the fact that they are cursing God's people. And God says, you're going to curse them, you're going to be cursed. But I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and all your descendants after you. And so I, for one, will not stand by and silently approve the stripping of God's fig tree. We have got to be willing to talk about it to our Christian friends and brothers and sisters, to non-Christians alike, to help people become aware of the significance of Israel to the church, much less to the world around us. Isaiah 62, verse 1, a favorite verse of mine. You ought to memorize it. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation is like a torch that is burning. And I believe that this is a Christian's proclamation. I believe that our declaration is the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Salvation for anyone who believes in His name. That is our declaration. That is our great commission to make disciples of Jesus. But I believe as we march along, we concurrently proclaim, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I have come to believe, and I told you, I didn't always think this way, but I have come to believe over the years that this is absolutely significant for every follower of Jesus. To stand for Israel, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to care about the Jewish people. Why? Because God does, and what happens to them will reflect His glory. It will impact His name. Why is this all so important? Okay, go back to Galatians. And you're lucky it's just two verses. Paul's letter here has been misunderstood. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to go ahead and do this early as opposed to waiting until we get to chapter 6. This letter to the churches of Galatia has been misunderstood by some to be a repudiation of Judaism. It is not. It is not. He didn't write this in opposition to the Jews. He wrote it in opposition to those disruptors, those agitators who were saying Gentile Christians needed to keep the law like Jewish people. And that's why I said last week, we will not call those agitators in the book of Galatians Judaizers. Because that's a misnomer. It it, it doesn't clearly portray who those people were. So it is not a book that is written against Israel. Paul is not denying Israel's place in God's holy agenda. And to make that clear, at the very end of the letter, he writes, verse 15 again, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, or literally a new creature. And those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. And that verse, that single verse, has been tagged by replacement theologians as the verse that proves that the church has replaced Israel. That God is through with the Jew. 
And in fact, even the New International Version mistranslates the verse. If you're reading a New International Version this morning, you will note this. The New International says, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even the Israel of God. And the implications of translating it that way is to say that the them is the Israel of God. Peace be upon them, that is the church, and the Israel of God, or or even the Israel of God. So the Israel of God is the church, and Israel has ceased to exist, and it's only the church, and the church has replaced Israel. And I am a fierce opponent of replacement theology. I've talked about it through the years. I've told you why. I've tried to explain through different studies we've done. But I'll tell you what, the more I hear about it, the more angry it makes me. And I apologize, I'm not angry at anybody here this morning. you know. And I'm not personally mad at someone who accepts or believes replacement theology, except that the church has not taught the truth about this. That what the translation is there, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's the word upon epi. It never translates as even or as in. It translates as upon. So peace and mercy be upon them. And by the way, note that the word is used twice and it is in the Greek. I don't, I don't mean to be too technical here, but he says those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon The Israel of God. And by using the word upon twice, he's talking about two different groups. Upon them and upon the Israel of God. Replacement theology. Listen, it's not just saying that the church has taken Israel's place. It's more than that. Please understand that replacement theology is a lie against God's chosen people And greater, it is a lie against God's own nature. Why is that? Because God is the one who proclaimed faithfulness to Israel. And if God is not faithful to Israel, God is not faithful. Do you understand what I'm saying? That if God will lie here, then God will lie there. But God cannot lie because His nature will not allow Him to be anything but true. He said in Hebrews 6.18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that is His promise and His nature, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Did God ever promise unconditional faithfulness to Israel? Yes. Okay, yes. More times than I can count. Promising unconditional faith. I will be there for you, Israel. The one conditional covenant was the Mosaic covenant. But you know before that, the covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made with David, multiple covenants prior to the Mosaic covenant were all unconditional. All God saying, I will be faithful to my people, though they be unfaithful to me. And that gives me great hope and great peace. Because that means if he says he'll be faithful to you, you can count on it. He does not turn his back on his people. Deuteronomy 4.31. Just one, I get two examples in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail. 
He will not fail you or destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Moses is talking there, and he's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about the covenants God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their fathers. And he says he will not forget those covenants that he made with your fathers. He will never forget those. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14. It reads, Zion said, and I think Israel feels this way today, many Jewish people do, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord responds. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God's eye is on Jerusalem. And my friends, Jerusalem is named. The Jewish people inscribed on the palms of His hands. I would say right next to the nail prints. God has not forgotten His people Israel. But what's interesting about Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, it is, it's the only place in the whole Bible, in fact, it's the only place in all Jewish literature where this exact phrase is used, the Israel of God. The Israel of God. So who are they then? The Israel of God is an inclusive phrase. That is... Paul is including here all Jews who lived by the faith of Abraham, in the faith of Abraham, with the faith of Abraham, all the way up to the coming of Jesus, and after the coming of Jesus, those who share the faith of Abraham, listen, in Jesus. So that would include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the fathers, Moses, you know, Daniel, the prophets. All those who had faith... In the Lord, faith in the Messiah. All the prophets talking about this coming Mashiach. Faith in Him. They had faith in the Messiah. David, look at the Psalms, had faith in the Messiah. Daniel had faith in the Messiah. And all those who have the faith of Abraham are part of the Israel of God. Inclusive. And all those after Jesus was crucified, who would then continue to put their faith in Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, are part of the Israel of God. So it's this grand, inclusive thing speaking to all Jewish people who put their faith in the Messiah. Now you may ask me, Rick, when did Abraham (laughs) ever put faith in Jesus? I mean, that's weird, man. He lived 2,000 years before Jesus. Well, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 56, and He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My day. And he saw it and was glad. Can you imagine the looks on the faces of the Pharisees? I mean, that would be a great YouTube video. Just to watch the Pharisees in their reactions to pretty much anything Jesus said. I mean, they must have looked like idiots. Trying to respond, and they say to Him, You are not yet 50 years old. And yet you say that you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. And yes, Abraham saw Jesus. And I can give you Old Testament passages that I think bear this out. More than one. not going to do it right now. But we could. I'm just not going to. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I will give you a name. Look up Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Compare that to what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7. Look at the angels who come to visit Abraham and the person of God who is there visiting Abraham also just after Genesis 15. So I'm somewhere between 15 and 20. Go look it up yourselves. I don't have to do it for you. Abraham saw my day, Jesus says. That's good enough for me. If Jesus says Abraham saw Jesus, I accept it. And Abraham put faith in Jesus. Abraham put faith in God. And all those who put faith in the Messiah. All those among Israel leading up to the cross and after the cross gang, they are included in the Israel of God. It spans all history. Circumcision, by the way, was simply a sign of the promise. It was not the promise itself. I mean, think about it. What kind of promise is that? Hey, if, if you join our fellowship. We joked about this last week, didn't we? You too can be circumcised. Who would want that? No, what God did was give a sign of the promise. And it's the perfect sign, by the way, because it deals with the seed of Abraham. And God says, I'm going to give you a mark that you will never forget. <laughs> To make you recognize it is for your seed and all after you. And Paul would talk about and will in Galatians 3, the seed of faith as well. But we're talking here about the Israel of God. The Israel of God. A phrase used, again, 65 times in the New Testament, always about Israel. It is inclusive. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly for our purposes this morning, the Israel of God is an eschatological phrase as well. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Anytime we say eschatological, we're talking about the time of the end. And this phrase then, as Paul uses it, it includes those Jews who, would, who were yet to have faith in Jesus. Those who Paul was confident would eventually, will come to believe in Jesus Christ. And I would put that marker down right now. It talks about Jews who today don't believe in Jesus, but they will. But they will. They will be coming to faith. There are already Jewish people in Israel coming to faith in Jesus in droves. You don't hear about it, but the Messianic movement in Israel is huge right now. And there will be more on the horizon. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the prophet said, God said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn and it will be a weeping of faith. As they see Jesus coming on the clouds, There is going to be a mass number of Jewish people, more perhaps than ever before, falling on their knees with faith in the Messiah. An eschatological phrase, the Israel of God. Paul put it this way in Romans 11.25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember what Jesus said? The fullness of the Gentiles. And again, the Gentiles are full. We are stuffed. And we're at the end of that time. And he says, so all Israel will be saved 
Romans 11.26, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. So the Israel of God here, note this, is inclusive and it is eschatological. And Paul had already in his day seen many Jews come to faith in Jesus, had he not? The Jewish church in Jerusalem, the church began with Jewish people. Paul knew that. And in seeing this opposition of some in the Jewish church against the Gentiles, he became concerned. And so he begins to say the Gentiles don't have to be Jewish. But understand, Jewish people are still saved. That the salvation is still coming to every last Jewish saint who will claim Yeshua HaMashiach as their Lord and Savior. That includes... 144,000 Jews from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Revelation chapter 7 verses 4 through 8. That includes all who will flee the final trampling of Jerusalem that is talked about in Revelation chapter 12 verse 6 and 14 through 16. And what I'm saying to you this morning is this. In these last days, if you want a marker to the Messiah... If you want a pointer to the parousia of the coming of Jesus Christ, keep a weather eye on Israel. Watch Israel. Pray again for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 6. And remember this. Israel feels alone. Israel in this world feels increasingly alone. One last uh, quote from Caroline Glick's Jerusalem Post op-ed. She said, in three weeks, Obama's war with Israel will be over. His final legacy obligates Israel for the first time in 50 years to determine by itself its long-term goals in relation to the international community, the Palestinians, and Judea and Samaria. She writes, regarding the international community, the United Nations Security Council has opened the door for its members to boycott Israel. As a result, she writes, Israel should now show the UN to the door. (laughs) If you think Israel feels alone in the world, it sure seems that way. But they're not. They are truly not. As was spoken by Chief Rabbi Yishtak Yosef, at the Western Wall, immediately following John Kerry's speech, he said, sometimes we need to be reminded from above that we can count on no one but our Father who art in heaven. Which, by the way, is a very Jewish phrase. Even America forsook us last week at the UN. We mustn't forget that the hearts of kings and captains are in the hands of the Lord and we can count on no one but Him. Would you personalize that this morning? Maybe you feel all alone in your world. Maybe you feel all alone in this world like nobody possibly understands what you're going through, what you have to deal with, what you are facing. Please understand, when you come to that place of utter aloneness, the promise of His parousia, that is His presence, His coming, is not only to Israel, it is appointed to Christians as well. It is to you. That there is no such thing as being utterly alone in a world where God is the overseer. Where God truly is still in control. Where Jesus Christ will be king. 
You are not alone. For He Himself has said, Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So peace and mercy... Peace and mercy cannot be realized either in circumcision or in uncircumcision, either in being Jewish or being opposed to Jewish people. You're not going to find peace or mercy there, but only as a new creature in Jesus Christ. And peace and mercy for those who walk by this rule be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Like no other time in 2,000 years, all the prophetic markers point to the imminent return of Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready for Him? As I began earlier, does that give you anxiety? It shouldn't. If it does, then we need to talk. The return of Jesus is the greatest hope we have. And if it's not your hope this morning, it can be. I invite you to come and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you've never done that. And I invite you if you find anxiousness or worry or fear in the idea that perhaps this is all coming this age to a conclusion and the next age is about to start. Don't be afraid. Precious people, be excited. Jesus is coming soon. Father, we pray to you this morning. We ask now that as we worship, You would open our hearts and our minds to receive Jesus, to look forward to His return. Father, even as we teach through these things, there are families suffering in Jerusalem this morning. There are mothers and fathers whose whose young ones will not come home from the army. We pray for Your comfort to be with them. We pray for peace to rule and reign over Jerusalem even as Jesus comes to establish that promised peace. We pray for the Jewish people. We ask, Father, that You will give us strength to stand for them and for the truth, knowing that as we do so, O Lord, we stand to the glory of God. We stand to those things that honor You. And that is our great desire. Bless Your name, Lord. Come quickly, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.